Okay, church, are we awake? Are you ready to dive into God's word? Are you excited about it? I need you to be excited. Don't make this painful for me up here, okay? We've got to have some energy. If you hear something that you agree with, you can shout, amen. You can shout, that's right. You can shout, back that truck up. What's that? What did you say? Preach it, brother. I don't know. Well, you could do that too. I'd be okay with that. I know it's daylight savings time, and we're kind of like, man, trying to get our head around it. Uh, And uh, I just would encourage you actually to focus in um, on what we're talking about today. We started a series last week called Easter People. And this is about the individuals that uh, were um, pivotal or very important and and a major player in uh, Jesus' death and resurrection. And we're taking the time to consider their lives and consider their point of view. And see if maybe God doesn't show us some things in their lives. And as well as as cause us then to pause and reflect and maybe even put ourselves in their shoes. You know, I think we, ha- we make this mistake of thinking that the Bible, you know, when we're talking about uh, the accuracy of the Bible and inerrancy and things like that. Sometimes we make the mistake of thinking that the Bible needs to read like a video camera that captured every single detail of the moment. Otherwise, it must not be true. But the reality is they're barely skimming the surface of a story, and we're getting truth from that. And sometimes when we pause to imagine and consider what it was like to be in that person's shoes, they were a real person living a real life. They had family. They had issues. They had good days. They had bad days. They cared about things. They didn't care about other things. They had personalities, all kinds of different personalities. And when we stop and put ourselves in their shoes and consider the journey that they walked with Jesus, perhaps it will bring some illumination to our own relationship with Christ. So I'm going to open us up with prayer, and then we're going to dive into the word. Lord, I pray today that your spirit would be at work in every heart. You came and died on the cross to transform lives, to restore relationships with you. Lord, to bring us new life, new birth, resurrection for ourselves someday. There was so much accomplished in the work of the cross and your resurrection, and I pray that we would not be a people that take it for granted, but we'd stop and consider seriously the power of what you did and what it means for our lives today. Lord, I pray that you'd be moving in each heart as we look at these stories. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to begin by setting the stage uh, for you today. We're looking at the crucifixion of Jesus. Last week I mentioned a article called um, The Science of Crucifixion. And I, I mentioned that to you. Did anybody go look that up and read it this week? A few of you, hands high, come on. Let's see. That's good. One of you. That's great. So I'm going to encourage you again to go look up that article called The Science of Crucifixion out of um, Azusa Pacific University. You will find that article very easy, and they go through and and talk about some of the suffering of Christ. And we talked about Mary Magdalene, who stood there at the base of the cross and watched these things. And today we're going to talk about a couple other more characters, and we're going to begin in the account of John. John was the only disciple of Jesus, one of the twelve, that was standing there at the foot of the cross, witnessing all the same things that Mary Magdalene did. And we're not talking about John specifically today, but we're going to uh, read his account of the situation at the cross to set the stage. Because we're preparing to celebrate Jesus' resurrection in a few weeks. And so we want to be reminding ourselves of the story. Oops. Since it was a day of preparation, I'll explain that later. 
And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day. This is not what I want. I'm going to go ahead and read. Yes, it is. Sorry. I got distracted there. Since it was a day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. I can't remember if I mentioned this to you last week, but uh, when we were being crucified on the cross, uh, and they wanted to hurry up the process, because normally it could take up to 36 hours to die hanging on that cross. Just imagine that for a second, what that must have been like. It's one of the most cruel ways to execute somebody. So oftentimes they'd be up there for sometimes as long as 36 hours. If they wanted to hurry along the process, they'd come along and break the legs of the individuals who were hanging on the cross. Now, I don't know how they did that, and I don't want to gross you out too much, but if you would imagine if you're hanging on the cross, foot over foot, 90 degree angle, how did they do that? Sledgehammer? I don't know. Club, big club, smash those legs so you couldn't hold yourself up anymore, and you'd slump down because you can't stand on those legs, and you'd suffocate. It's horrifying. Sorry, this was supposed to be a G-rated service. I guess it's not anymore. The crucifixion of Christ was gory and horrifying. But I want to talk about this day of preparation, too, so that you understand what's going on. There's a lot of controversy about this. I'll possibly get into it later if I have time. But the day before a Sabbath was a day of preparation. You couldn't work on a Sabbath. You, weren't, you, you didn't even cook and clean, nothing. So you got everything ready the day before, and it was called a day of preparation. And for the Jews, most of you probably know, their day started at sunset. So tonight, right when the sun sets, that would be the beginning of Monday for them. And Monday would go till the sunset of the next day. So they had to have these guys crucified by sunset. They had to be done with it because they couldn't deal with them the next day because it was a Sabbath. So they're kind of in a hurry to get this done. Maybe. My clicker's gone. Can you go to the next slide for me, Carter? Oh, now it's working. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was already dead. They did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. We talked about this a little bit last week. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he's telling the truth that you also may believe. What's John saying here? I am the witness of this. I stood there and watched this happen. This was the big thing that propelled the message of Christ out into the known world at the time was the fact that this man had resurrected from the dead. And so they're going around telling the story, and people aren't believing it. A lot of people don't believe it, just like they don't believe it today. But John's saying, I stood there and watched this happen. Put yourself in John's shoes, what that might have felt like, being there. For these things took place that the Scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. When, when Jesus was speared on the cross, he, you know, they intended to break his legs, but there was prophecies in the Old Testament that said not a bone of his would be broken. And this is seen as a fulfillment of that, that when they went to break his bones, he was already dead. So they pierced him, which also fulfilled prophecies of the Old Testament. The number of prophecies that Jesus fulfilled in the Old Testament is staggering. 
And another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. So John is reminding us that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the one who fulfilled the Old Testament. Now I want to switch over to Mark's account at the end of the crucifixion. So we've set the stage. Jesus has just died. It's a tragic moment. The crowds are going away. And we begin with Mark, Mark's account. Joseph of Arimathea. I want to focus on Joseph a little bit today. A respected member of the council. So what was the council? You know, Rome had conquered Israel. And Rome often allowed the existing cultures to continue to govern themselves to a certain extent. And so they saw themselves as, as liberators and, and they saw their cause as good. And so when they'd come in and conquer these places, they'd still allow many of them to continue to uh, govern themselves in certain ways. And so what they did is they formed a council, some call it the Sanhedrin, which just has to do with the Greek words um, associated with the word council. And it was consisting of 71 people. Now, where did they get that 71? That 71 came from in the Old Testament when Moses established elders, a governing body of elders for the Jews. And so there were 70 of them plus Moses. And I think we catch glimpses of this when we fast forward to the New Testament and we see Paul giving instruction to Titus and Timothy, establish elders in every community, a team of respected people who will lead the church. So there's some connections there. Joseph was a part of the 71 guys who governed the Jews. The Romans didn't want to have to handle all of their issues, especially the Jews who had a very complex legal system in regards to the Old Testament. Joseph of Arimathea was a respected member of the council. So what would that be like? If I were to compare Joseph's life to someone today, maybe it'd be like a politician, a powerful politician. Someone who has a lot of power in the nation. Maybe like a senator or something. Somebody very important. He was also himself looking for the kingdom of God. Now wait a minute, wasn't it the Sanhedrin, wasn't it the Jewish leaders who wanted Jesus to be crucified? By and large, yes, that's true. But Jesus' message was infiltrating every part of society. Even the political and governing system. See, the Jews, they didn't want, the, the, the Sanhedrin did not want to yield their power to Jesus. They didn't see him as the Messiah. They saw him as a competitor with them. And yet, even amongst them, there was a man who was becoming persuaded about Christ. Sometimes I don't, I, I just want to encourage you, don't underestimate who God is reaching with. We don't know. We don't see what he's doing in high places or in people's lives. Joseph of Arimathea was a powerful man. We can presume he was wealthy. You know, Jesus said it's as easy for a wealthy man to enter the kingdom of God as it is for a camel to fit through the eye of a needle. And his disciples went, what? That's a paraphrase. Thank you, I'm glad you laughed. (laughs) But still, Joseph is a wealthy and powerful man, and he's waiting for the kingdom of God, and there's something about Jesus that has captured him. He was looking for the kingdom of God. He took courage, and he went to Pilate. Who was Pilate? Pilate is the Roman governor. He's really the authority in this situation. But he doesn't want to deal with the Jews and all their whining and nonsense. He wants them to sort it out themselves. And ultimately, even though he believed Christ was innocent, even though he tried to get Christ off the hook, 
He still turned them over to the Jews and said, fine, do what you want with them. So Pilate's the person of power here, and supposedly this Jewish council didn't really have the authority to order an execution. They needed Pilate to do that, so that's uh, who Joseph was a part of that. So he has to take courage, and he goes to Pilate. I mean, think about it. You've got to go to the occupying ruler, the militant leader of the nation, and you've got to ask for the body of someone they just crucified. It took courage for Joseph to do that. See? We're gonna, we're, well, well, we'll unpack this a little bit. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Why was Pilate surprised? I just told you, because they expected it to be about 36 hours. But Jesus had a pretty unique situation with the beatings that he took and the crown of thorns that was on his head. He couldn't even carry his cross. That's how bad a shape he was in by the time he got to the cross. So Pilate was surprised, and summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. I kind of wondered in this situation uh, what went on here when he summons the centurion. So he's got Joseph of Arimathea comes before him, and, and Joseph says, can I have the body of Jesus? Pilate's like, you can't be dead yet. I don't need this guy sneaking him off the cross while he's still alive and rescuing him. I'm going to get one of my soldiers to go sure, make sure he's dead. I kind of wonder if this centurion is like, yeah, I'll go check. Spear. Was it the same centurion? I don't know. I'm just imagining. Use your imagination. Put yourself in that situation so that you understand more fully really what went on. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. I must have lost a verse here somewhere. Verse 45, it goes on after summoning the centurion. It says, and then he learned from the centurion that he was dead. And so he granted the corpse to Joseph. See, these guys, to ask for Jesus' body and to begin his burial process required a real sense of honor. See, Joseph was in hiding. John, in his account, says that... um, Joseph was afraid of the Jews. He was afraid of them finding out that he was secretly a follower of Christ. And so when I put myself in Joseph's shoes, I ask myself that question, are there times that I'm afraid that the people around me know that I'm a Christian, know that I follow Jesus? He was in hiding. And I also ask myself this question, is that okay? Was it okay that he was keeping it a secret? Because we're going to look at Nicodemus as well. Do you think it's okay to keep it a secret that you're a believer of Christ? (laughs) You feel me baiting you into something, don't you? But I also look at Iran. And I look at the church growth that's going on in the nation of Iran. And they're doing it in hiding. And they're having to do it in secret. Because if they expose themselves, they have a very real risk of execution. The reason the disciples were not standing at the foot of the cross with Jesus and why they were in so much fear is they actually thought they might be next. Now I wonder, that, 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 that isn't even close to where you and I are in our context here in America. We're not risking ex- execution. 
But I just, I don't have an answer for you about that question, but I just wondered, you know, the Bible never condemns Joseph for being in hiding in his belief. It just makes me wonder, when is it okay to shout it from the mountaintops? You know, Jesus said, if you, if you deny me before man, I'll deny you before the Father. It's very, very important that we are willing to express our faith in Christ. And we know that in places like Iran and China, where they're, they're hiding, they're having to hide. If they got up with, with, with an American attitude on the street corner and said, I don't care what you think, this is what I think, they're like, send him to the gallows. He's done. And I just wondered about that as I was studying Joseph's story. I also want to talk about Nicodemus. John is the only one who mentions Nicodemus right alongside Joseph. These two take the body of Jesus off the cross, and they're running out of time. I mean, if you study the story of Jesus' crucifixion, the timing of the day, it's getting close to the end of the day. And if the sun sets, they're not allowed to touch a dead body. In the Jewish law, you were considered unclean if you touch a dead body, and they wouldn't be able to uh, participate in the feast that's going on. There's controversy about the timing of these things, and maybe I'll unpack that a little bit for you if we have time today. But they're hurrying, trying to get him off the cross, and Nicodemus does something amazing. We'll talk about Nicodemus in a little more depth, but he does this. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Why is this significant? Why is this in the Bible? Why do we see these kind of details? And it's so fun to explore to me. If you're a nerd like me, this is fun. Some of you are checking out because this information is like, eh, whatever. But this is really interesting to me. It was Jewish custom. They didn't embalm the dead. The Egyptians did. That's where we get embalming, and the concepts of embalming was from Egypt. But the Jews didn't do that. But what they did is they would wrap the body... And they would use spices and things like that to slow down decay. Because if decay happens really fast, it smells really bad. And so they would, they would, you know, sometimes have anywhere from 5 to 20 pounds. If you had 20 pounds of spices packed around your dead body, you were wealthy. It was an honor. They really held uh, the body in honor. And there's a reason why they did that. Egyptians weren't much different. The reason they preserved these bodies or they slowed down to decay is they really valued that God had given you a body. They believed that you might inhabit that body again one day. So the concept of resurrection was actually at play all throughout history and in all kinds of societies. And so they were very careful about how they took care of the dead, that their body was still at rest. They didn't quite have all of the robust theology that we have today about it. They just knew that it was a big deal. And that that person, they had a sense that that person still existed somewhere else and might very well come back. In fact, the Jews didn't seal up. You know, we, we see the story of the, the women going to the tomb. Like, how many of you would go back to the grave a few days later and dig it up so you could put more spices in? You're like, that's weird. What are they doing? But they left the tomb unsealed usually so that people could come do that kind of thing to show their respect and honor for the person that had died. So when the women are going to the grave in the morning, we saw this with Mary Magdalene the last week, with spices that they weren't going to need, they're continuing this process of, of honoring God. 
of honoring Jesus. Now, Nicodemus, 75 pounds he did. This was, this is what a king would get. And actually, he was a king. Nicodemus gave a significant honoring, the most honoring kind of burial. See, we talked about this last week. I didn't get to finish it. But the Romans typically crucified you naked. The most pain and the most humiliation they could do. That's usually what they did. Now, there is a possibility that out of, you know, for the Jews, that was just unacceptable. So we don't know exactly what Jesus' situation was. I mean, all the old art and stuff, of course, has him wearing some kind of a loincloth, right? And there is consideration for the possibility that that was true. But generally speaking, they were naked. Now, I want you to put yourself in Jesus' shoes, hanging naked on a cross, bleeding everywhere for the whole world to see how that feels emotionally, how humiliating that is. And actually, the Romans didn't normally let you take the bodies down right away. They left them up there, both as a sign to not be messing around, and secondly, just to completely humiliate the person for their crime. But Nicodemus has this compassion for Christ, and he takes him off the cross, and he gives him the burial of a king. Nicodemus loved Jesus. Wait a minute, Nicodemus, I know that name. Where did I hear that before? One of the most recognizable passages of Scripture is in John chapter 3. Particularly John 3.16, which many, many people know, even non-Christians. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believed in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Okay, why do we, why do we know that? Why do we know that one? It's such an important scripture. But who did Jesus say that to? Who was Jesus teaching when he said those words? Nicodemus. Now, who was Nicodemus? There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. Nicodemus is also a powerful man. He's he's a ruler. It doesn't say that he's one of the Sanhedrin, which is kind of this governing body. But he's a Pharisee, which makes him a very much a religious leader. Now, let me paint the picture of the time for you. I've talked about this a little bit in the past. But you, as you, if you read through the New Testament and you're familiar, you know that lots of Jesus' c- combating dialogue, his, his, his fighting, looking for the word, his disagreements were with the Pharisees. And so in modern Christianity, Pharisee is kind of a cuss word. We actually use it as an accusation, don't we? You're being a Pharisee. Nicodemus was a Pharisee. Actually, I, it was just some extra food for thought. Why was Jesus always combating with the Pharisees and not the Sadducees? He did with the Sadducees. But why does it always seem like it's the Pharisees he's dealing with? Well, maybe this will help you understand. The Pharisees and the Sadducees would be pretty similar to, well, not pretty similar would be a stretch. But we could compare it to Today, with Democrats and Republicans. Okay, your Pharisees would be more your right-wing types. They're really concerned with the, you know, in, in, the, in the biblical world, in the Christian world, uh, you would say that the Christian right really believes that the Scripture is, is true and to be followed as instruction, and then you get on the more liberal end of the spectrum of Christianity, the Scripture is kind of more like a suggestion and maybe. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees were very much that same way. The Pharisees were the more rigid, legalistic, very strict Bible-following uh, side of the, you know, pros and cons of their side. 
The Sadducees were very, very liberal in their theology. They didn't even believe there was resurrection from the dead. And actually, they were very influenced by the Greeks. A lot of their beliefs had a lot of Greek influence in it. And because of this, the Romans liked the Sadducees. So the Sadducees were actually had more political power than the Pharisees in those days. In fact, the high priest of the Jews was kind of a, a puppet for Pilate and the Romans, and he was a Sadducee. So Jesus is often dealing with, so he's got these more conservative Pharisees coming at him going, is that true, is that true, is that true? Kind of like the Christian on the right do. I don't know. There's kind of this attitude that comes with it, and Jesus is constantly dealing with them. He loves them. He loves them. He's trying to persuade them, and in fact, he persuaded some. Paul was a Pharisee, the most zealous of Pharisees, highly educated. He knew the law in and out, and God took that knowledge that he had, turned Paul on his head, and then changed the world with him. The Pharisees were, they're an important part of the story. It helps us understand a lot of different things. So there's a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Why did, why did Nicodemus come by night? Same reason Joseph. He was afraid. He had power. He had authority. He doesn't know for sure about this Jesus guy yet. <clears throat> but he knows some things. He came by night and said to him, Rabbi, which by the way was a fairly new word at the time, we know that you are a teacher from God. What's he doing right here? He's confessing something. He knows that Jesus is from God. And he's trying to lead the people. He's trying to manage this whole uproar of this Messiah that's just showed up on the scene. He's one of the managers of that. He's trying to figure out what to do. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus wants to know. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So this dialogue takes place between Nicodemus and Jesus. You're like, okay, Jared, great story. What does this have to do with anything in my life today? When I think of Nicodemus and I think of Joseph as powerful people, particularly in, in Nicodemus' situation, Nicodemus was in process. Maybe you know people that are in the middle of a process in life, and maybe they're not, they haven't quite arrived yet. They're not sure about Jesus. They think he's, re they, they believe in him, but they, they look at the messiness in the church, or they look at this messed up situation, or they've had terrible experiences themselves, so they're not sure, but there's something in them that thinks he's the son of God. They, they know somehow that he is, but they haven't quite resolved the whole thing in their mind. Hey, I've been there. I grew up in the church, right? And I'm going through my late teen years, and that's where I was. I'm in process. I believe there was God, but I didn't, I wasn't, I didn't get it yet, really. I didn't like a lot of the things I saw. I wasn't sure about some of the teaching I'd heard. And I'm wrestling, wrestling, wrestling. Can some of you identify with wrestling? Not quite sure yet. Not quite on board. I have these questions. Your answers are confusing. I know there's something to it, but I don't know what it is. That was where Nicodemus was. 
And I would suggest that's probably a lot where Joseph was. Man, I'm this man of power. I know there's something to this. It's going to cost me politically. <clears throat> it may cost me financially. Can I take the risk of letting people know that I respect this man, Jesus? So many people in our world are like that. Maybe you're in that situation where you, you think you believe, but you're, you're not quite sure. You know what? That's okay. Keep walking. God doesn't Jesus doesn't condemn Nicodemus here, does he? He teases him a little bit. Aren't you Israel's teacher? If you're in process, if you're in Nicodemus' shoes, and you're kind of looking at what it might cost you to follow Jesus, just keep walking. Keep asking. Maybe go to him at night <laughs> when no one's going to hear what you say and just say, Jesus, I know you must be from God, but what about this? What about that? And you know what? Jesus loved Nicodemus. He answered his questions. Nicodemus' story is in here to teach us many things about him. One of the most profound teachings in the New Testament is right here in John chapter 3, and it was Jesus teaching a Pharisee that he loved. And by the time Jesus' life was over, I don't know how much time went on between this and Jesus' crucifixion, but by the time it was over, Nicodemus gave up probably what some people estimate about $150,000 to $200,000 worth of spices. Let me say that again. <laughs> how many of you could use $150,000? Can you imagine taking $150,000 and going, I love this. It's so important to me that I honor this person so well that I'm going to take this money and I'm going to use it to give him the burial of a king. Do you question whether or not Nicodemus loved Jesus? I don't. Not anymore. And he was a Pharisee. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths and spices, as is the burial customs of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Guess whose tomb that was? It was Joseph's tomb. See, Joseph had had the tomb carved out for himself. And wealthy people did that. They were able to do that. And so, I don't know how old Joseph was, but I don't know what that's like to go, I think I should dig my own tomb. It's funny. It's okay. You can laugh. But he did. He's wealthy. He's preparing for his own burial. It tells you how much they respected the dead and how much they, they respected the bodies of the dead. So he, he, they take Jesus' body and they put it in there instead. I mean, they're in a hurry. Sun's almost ready to set. They can't be unclean for their festivals this week. Their feast of unleavened bread. They've got to be ready to go. They can't be unclean. So they put it in Joseph's tomb, thus fulfilling more Old Testament prophecy. That he would, he would be buried with the rich. <laughs> though, though he'd been unjustly killed, he would be buried with the wealthy. It makes me think about this. Did Joseph have any idea when he was born and all the years that he lived that one day he would fulfill Old Testament prophecy? What a privilege to be that character. And I wonder, do you ever consider in your life that God has very, very powerful, important things for you to do, possibly? And you're absolutely clueless. 
and you're just going about your life. And I'm confident Joseph was just going about his life. He didn't read it and go, I'm going to fulfill this prophecy. I'm going to bury him in my tomb, and I'm rich. They didn't even, they didn't understand these things completely yet. This is all in process. He's just going about his life, and he loves God, and he's doing what he thinks is right to honor God. In the middle of it, he fulfills something profound. That could be your life in the middle of your journey. Not even knowing, but just following God and loving God, suddenly find yourself fulfilling fulfilling great purpose in the kingdom of God. God loves every single one of you. He has plans for every single one of you. There is work, foreordained good works for every single one of us to accomplish. Don't panic about that. Oh, no, I don't know what that is. Joseph didn't know what it was either. He just was going on with his life, and he did it because he loved God. That could be your journey as well. Would you stand, please? How do we pray this morning? How do we pray, Lord? Lord, these were average guys in some ways. I mean, they were popular in their time. They were powerful, but really not that different from us today. They weren't the rock stars of the Bible. They're not Peter. They're not Paul. They're just guys with a little blip on the radar of the story, and yet there's such profound things that we can draw from them. And God, I pray for every one of my friends here this morning, every person that showed up, all at different points in the journey, different gifts, different personalities, different perspectives, different opinions. But Lord, you see each one. You know every thought, and you see every heart. And God, wherever each one is, Lord, I pray that the power of your Holy Spirit would be sensed in their heart right now about your love and about your purpose for them. I pray you just be speaking it right now into their lives. I love you. I have plans for you. I care about you. I'll help answer your questions. There's so much more. In Jesus' name, amen.